A technology trade association is urging Congress to update the law that lets the FCC auction off radio spectrum held by the government. In fact, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation basically says the government continues to hog much spectrum that could be more efficiently used by industry. For details, we turn to ITIF's Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy, Joe Kane. Mr. Kane, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It seems like we've been talking about spectrum for 25 years now. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big topic, and there, there's always need for more. So the economy is only getting more and more wireless. And as that uh, happens, we're going to see more and more need for spectrum. And so the need to use what we have efficiently and find more wherever we can is uh, always ongoing. Is the auction mechanism what's needed more of or what has to happen, do you think, to get more spectrum to where it's commercially best used? Yeah, so auctions are important. And it is important that we renew the FCC's authority to auction spectrum. But right now, the bulk of the most important spectrum is held by the federal government. And the federal government is not under the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. And so we need some sort of mechanism to incentivize those federal agencies who have really important missions that they have to accomplish with spectrum, but also maybe don't have the incentive to use it as efficiently as possible to maybe uh, be better stewards of the spectrum and give up somewhere they can. And where is this spectrum that the government is using and what are some typical ways they're using it? I mean, is it all Defense Department or do some of the others have it also? The Defense Department has a bulk of it, I think. It's, you know, you can sort of think of the obvious things the Defense Department would be using it for. Radar is, is a very common one. But we also have things like weather satellites that are run by NOAA and and uh, GPS, and to some extent, has a, a governmental side to it. And so, yeah, it's, it's lots of different things. Also, c- just communications networks that, you know, the kinds of things that you would have uh, your cell phone running on, the Department of Defense needs those too. The most important spectrum right now, both for the government and for commercial use, is in the mid-band, which is generally around the 3 to 7 gigahertz. Didn't they recently take away 7 gigahertz from wireless microphones? There's lots of stuff around the edges there, but I think the big swaths of spectrum that we would need to get, you know, you need wide channels to have the amount of throughput that we're seeing with you know, services like 5G and, you know, the coming things like AR and VR are going to need a lot of bandwidth. And so you need sort of big, clear swaths of spectrum for them to operate in. Yes, God forbid you couldn't dance in spectral form on a meta Facebook thing or something. And we certainly need that for, for national whatever. But, I mean, how much do you feel, say there's three to seven, just for sake of argument, that's a range of four gigahertz in there. How much can the government, do you feel, actually give up and still be able to meet national security and other missions? If we're just looking at it now, there's, there's a good argument from a lot of the agencies that, look, we need what we have. But there's also things that we could do to make uh, the government use their spectrum more efficiently, and therefore they w- there would be more excess capacity than there is now. So if you just look at it in a static sense, uh, there's less. But you know, as we're we're moving in the long run, there are things the federal government could do that would make their receivers, their spectrum, work better for them. They could accomplish their missions better, and also have spectrum left over for commercial use. So technical things like wave division multiplexing that's used in fiber, that kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, that kind of thing. And I think also just better filtering of receivers. A lot of problems that we've seen is just when you have uh, devices in the field that are listening to a really wide range of frequencies more than they have to, that you can sort of clamp that down and say, let's listen only to the frequencies that we really need. And therefore, you can fit more services in on the edges of those bands. We're speaking to Joe Kane, the ITIF's Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy. So what are your recommendations then for using it more efficiently and incentivizing agencies to use it more efficiently? 
because you know otherwise they can just keep doing what they're doing and why bother yeah the incentives are really the hardest part because unlike for a commercial wireless operator you know if you have spectrum that you paid a lot of money for you really need to use it efficiently or otherwise you're going to go out of business but for the government they don't really have that so we have this thing called the commercial spectrum enhancement act that created a spectrum relocation fund which is supposed to essentially pay the costs of federal users when they move out of a band and allow commercial use there but there's a flaw in that legislation that says that you can only use that money for equipment of a comparable capability and so we sort of end up replacing old bad equipment with the same old bad equipment instead of saying, you know, we're going to upgrade and, you know, put in devices that use Spectrum more efficiently. And so I think a legislative fix there would be very helpful in saying, you no, know, we are going to prioritize more efficient Spectrum using devices in the federal government and also give guidance to OMB. So the Office of Management and Budget is charged sort of overseeing how this act works. And they have been kind of stingy with it and saying that we aren't going to allow the funds to be used for a lot of different kinds of things that could make Spectrum more efficient in the long run. Yeah, to use Spectrum more efficiently, equipment has to be upgraded. So there's an acquisition real cost here to replace radios and transmission equipment. Yeah, definitely. That is a big barrier to anything is that all this stuff costs money. But I think that in the long run, the real costs come from having not enough spectrum available or we end up with interference uh, disputes. You know, we look at what's happening now or what happened last year with the airplanes and cell phones having some conflicts with each other. And there's billions of dollars on the line there that if we had spent $26 million up front, we could have saved uh, a whole lot of headache and a whole lot of money down the road. And so having that new equipment in place early is really important to saving money in the long run. Yeah, I heard my own station on my keyboard amp the other day because I had a badly shielded cable plugged in. And I thought, boy, this is really strange. This is not a radio. It's a keyboard amp. But somehow it was picking up Federal News Network. I said, I hope it happens all over the place. But what about the international aspects of this? And you mentioned radar and DOD, which operates worldwide. Satellites operate worldwide. We just had a little balloon come over from China that was presumably using spectrum to get whatever it was purloining over to China. I mean, five megahertz is five megahertz wherever on the earth you are. Is that part of the equation? I think it is. There's definitely, it's an important to have international harmonization in the spectrum that you're using just because it's it's helpful for uh, device manufacturers to not have to make a different device for every part of the world. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of benefits to be gained from that. But I also think the international dimension also emphasizes the importance of making your uh, equipment resilient because uh, the Department of Defense isn't always going to be operating in a place where the FCC can come in and kick off the people who are operating in the wrong channel. You know, sometimes they're going to be people intentionally interfering with you. And so a device that is more resilient to the bad guys also is going to free up more space for the good guys. And by the way, does 5G operate in this midband? It does, yes. So there's there's been some uh, allocations for 5G in the midband already. I think there is significant need for more. That's uh, right now the lower three gigahertz band is one of the main places we're looking. It's currently used by federal radar, Department of Defense radar. And so trying to figure out a way to use that, keep the radar working maybe in a smaller range of frequencies or maybe on a shared basis with commercial users is something that's very much talked about right now. And one of your recommendations is Congress should require administrative pricing for spectrum consumed by federal agencies. Who do you pay if, it, if the spectrum is in the government's hands? Yeah, yeah. So that's there, this is an idea that gets kicked around a lot, but I think it is to some level becomes sort of an academic exercise where you have the government paying itself for its own spectrum. Uh, but I do think it is useful to 
put numbers on a piece of paper and say, look, this is how much we're using. This is how much it would go. We think it might go for in a private market and say, wow, this is maybe like DOD, you're using way more resources than we thought you were just because we weren't accounting for the numbers properly. And so, you know, we have GSA out there trying to buy buildings and things for the federal government. And we keep track of those prices and say, look, this is a real cost. These resources could be used for other things in the economy. And we want to keep track of what that is. And just to get back to the question of what the industrial uses might be, are there important industrial requirements for this area of spectrum besides virtual reality and stuff like that, nonsense like that on Facebook? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ones right now is industrial Internet of Things networks. So you can have a private network operating within your factory that can make the factory itself a lot more efficient, reduce maintenance times and reduce power consumption and things like that. That is important for everything from just helping a company save on its bottom line, but also things like climate change, if you are don't have to use as much energy. But I also think you know we're just consuming more and more data just in a sort of broadband connectivity sense that it, we have now people using 5G connections just as their home broadband. And if we want more of that, just from a competitive standpoint, we're going to need a lot more spectrum to support it. Right. A lot of industry sectors say that Internet of Things is a major application when they get into artificial intelligence, using Internet of Things data and transmission of that data. And so that would argue for a stronger 5G presence because right now 5G is only partially fulfilling its its potential. Yeah, I think we still definitely have a long way to go with 5G. We're still sort of in the early days of it. But I think that's, that's always the case with, with new technologies that you put it out there and you don't really know what people are going to do with it. Like with 4G, we didn't really know what the app economy was going to look like when it first rolled out. But the, here, here we are where everything is now Uh, on our cell phones as an app. All right. Well, I just want to keep 1500 AM, whatever that falls on the spectrum. Joe Kane is Director of Broadband and Spectrum Policy for the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tune into the Federal Drive anytime. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. 
Um, they're they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, 
and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks. Uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you, when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.